Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Freedom Talks. This is your host, Brady. Uh, today, we are interviewing uh, Emily Belter, a speech-language pathologist. Um, she is a, she's certified uh, and has an extensive background in evaluation and treatment of speech, swallowing, language, voice, and cognitive disorders. Uh, along with Emily today, we have Molly Ripberg, who is a physical therapist at Freedom Physical Therapy. Uh, the... Uh, kind of thing that brings us together today is that both Emily and Molly have uh, a lot of background on working with Parkinson's patients and have kind of connected through there. And so we want to uh, come on today and give you a little bit more information about why a speech language pathologist and a, a physical therapist would be communicating together um, about Parkinson's patients. And so I hope everybody's doing okay today. How are you both? Great, great. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Yep, doing well. Doing well. So I guess what would be useful is maybe if you guys could fill me in on exactly how you met and then uh, if you guys could both give me just a slight background as to how you got to the spots you're in in your careers and um, why you kind of led to the point where you were meeting about Parkinson's. So I'll take the beginning at least. Um, so um, I have been working with Parkinson's patients for about two plus years now. Um, I have always worked um, or have always skewed more towards patients that um, tend to be 65 and up. And with Parkinson's disease, it was just kind of a natural thing that I was interested in it um, since most Parkinson's patients tend to be um, older adults. Um, and so I actually had a patient, um, a Parkinson's patient that I was working with, and um, they asked me, I really need someone to help keep my speech going. Who do you know? Um, and I said, I don't really have anybody that I work with. I do the LSVT big portion of it, but I don't have anybody that knows the LSVT loud portion. Um, so I hit Google. Um, I wanted to find a independent um, practitioner that could help me out. And I stumbled upon Emily and we talked and it was a good fit. And um, yeah, so I it's a nice component to have someone um, working on both the the motor and then the speech at the same time. They can be done together um, or separately, um, but both components um, for Parkinson's patients are really critical. And Emily, how about you? Uh, so from my point of view, um, I... I've always worked with those who have had a Parkinson's diagnosis, but probably more indirectly in the beginning of my career, uh, which started in 2006. Um, and once I took a full-time position um, in a large uh, medical um, organization, healthcare organization, um, which was in 2015, um, I became trained in a more direct treatment, evaluation and treatment approach um, through the LSVT. 
And then that's when my passion for working with the Parkinson's population really began. So I have been working with this population for about seven years um, directly with the evaluation and treatment. Um, I have grown my toolbox um, to include another certification, um, which is the Speak Out program. Um, I love both programs. They serve different purposes, but really target the same thing. So um, when I was working in the larger healthcare organization, I worked very closely with uh, a physical therapist and together we formed an exercise group, which was so great and one of the highlights of my career. Um, I did leave uh, more of the mainstream medical world in 2018. Um, and so for the last four years, I have been on my own as a private practice owner um, and have continued to work with this population. I love this population. I love helping those living with Parkinson's and their families and was just elated when Molly reached out and we were able to form a connection um, to just to help those individuals who um, they have that need. You guys both mentioned the LSVT and then you mentioned the Speak Out program and certifications. I guess, could you do a little bit of deep dive into, you know, if, if someone has Parkinson's and they're looking for providers, um, what is special about these certifications? And I guess, what do they do for the practitioner skill set that helps these Parkinson's patients? Uh, so from a speech therapy standpoint, uh, these certifications mean that we have taken this additional training um, to really focus on what the needs are of those who are living with Parkinson's. Uh, and the goals of both of these programs is really to focus on being loud enough to be heard. Uh, the actual voice, um, the the anatomically, the voice is just fine. It's, it's a matter of how the voice is being used. Um, and it's a result of the lack of dopamine that's being produced that uh, ends up with a, a softer, quieter, maybe a rougher vocal quality. And a lot of these individuals have a hard time being heard um, and have a hard time with communication overall. Uh, the nice thing too, is that we can really um, monitor any cognitive changes that are happening, maybe difficulty with memory. And through these programs, it, it can also target those difficulties. Um, and then additionally, on top of that, uh, our voice is controlled by the same muscles that are so important in swallowing. And these individuals usually will also have reports of difficulty swallowing or coughing when they're eating or drinking. And that can have a larger impact on someone's overall safety um, with eating and drinking and um, really can have a big impact on quality of life. So um, these programs are so great in really looking at those three things and improving all three of those areas. Um, 
having a practitioner that is trained in these areas is so important in uh, the management of those changes that come with Parkinson's disease. Um, and again, just means that they have that specialty training. Um, we can't just treat Parkinson's, uh, the deficits and the difficulties that come with Parkinson's like anything else. It's a very, it's a very specialty area and finding somebody who is trained in those areas and is maintaining that training is so important. And then Molly, I mean, maybe just from your perspective, what does that extra training do um, to help from your side of things? Yep. So um, a lot of what we do um, with the with my LSVT big training, um, you know, there's no magic cure for Parkinson's, um, but we're really trying to like slow down the progression and then maintain what they have so that it doesn't progress and get worse. Um, a lot of what our training was, um, is learning, um, how to not only have them exercise and show them movements, um, but to also kind of recalibrate their brain. So like with Parkinson's, they don't realize that their movements are lessening or their voice is getting, you know, quieter or that sort of thing. Um, they still feel like their movements, their arm swings, their their um, heel strikes, their walking is the same. Um, but from an outside perspective, everybody else can see that it's getting smaller or quieter or shorter. Um, and so really kind of retraining, recalibrating their brain um, to make big movements. And that's kind of where the, the LSVT big comes from is that there's a lot of... Um, encouragement to make movements that they feel they're doing even bigger so that it almost looks normal to to the regular untrained person. Um, And so our training just was really focused on, um, you know, teaching them how to move, making them aware of their movements, um, and then, you know, kind of helping them progress as as they progress, you know, as far as um, functional tasks, daily activities, stuff that we take for granted when you don't have a, a motor disorder um, in that, you know, getting out of bed, putting on your socks. Um, we practice these things and we help kind of through repetition go over and over and over to kind of retrain the brain this is how you're supposed to do it so um you know it it definitely requires you know additional training the certificate certification um but it, it it's one of those things that you know i can pretty easily and i'm sure emily in her field like if you if i see someone out in public i can pretty much pinpoint they have Parkinson's disease or they have another neurological movement disorder. Um, whereas I'm sure when Emily hears someone speak or even just watching their facial movements and swallowing and all of that, that she can pretty much pinpoint, you know, this is what they have just from our training and, and being able to see, you know, these are things that you should be aware of or look for in a patient. Absolutely. And and to add on to that, I, through my work, um, have been able to to collaborate with physical therapy, not only 
during the actual treatment, but getting individual services and being able to to pick up when it's not just a voice issue and it's actually Parkinson's and being able to refer individuals to their neurologists or to their primary physicians to look at this further and with a broader scope in order to get them the, the services that they need in order to improve their overall quality of life. Being a speech therapist, I still practice within my scope, but I can see the signs, physical signs that would um, that would be beneficial for them to then go for physical therapy. And uh, they might not be able to piece all those things together until we look at the whole picture. But um, having that training is really important for the whole individual and not just for what my scope of practice is. Now, the the focus of this podcast is very broad, and, and it seems to always come back to, like, what is the ecosystem of your healthcare system as a person that you have? And I guess for a person of Parkinson's, um, what are all of the care perspectives that you're kind of talking about, like physical therapist, physical therapy, speech therapy, you've got your primary, a neurologist. Um, what, who are all of the components of an ideal care ecosystem for somebody with Parkinson's? Do you guys know off the top of your head? I mean, I think you named them pretty well. I mean, sometimes I would say maybe even a social worker, depending on like the home situation, um, just because as the Parkinson's progresses, they're obviously going to lose like the ability to drive, um, you know, and if they don't have necessarily a spouse or a family member that can care for them, then they need someone to kind of manage their health. But I would say for sure, you know, PT, maybe even some OT, um, depending on, you know, fine motor stuff that they're doing. Um, But even as a physical therapist through my training, um, I do work on some fine motor, um, you know, grasp and, and, and hand stuff, because a lot of times some of the early symptoms of Parkinson's disease is a tremor. There are other ones that are early, but I would say is what I've seen in the clinic that tends to be one of the earlier symptoms that they at least go to their primary care physician or their neurologist with is like my hand is shaking or my leg is shaking and I'm I don't know why and then it leads them down the path to Parkinson's um but I would say I think you know that probably that group of people is the primary group of people that would be working with together with a Parkinson's patient. And now then, um, you know, that's that's a lot for one individual, obviously, to have. And um, I guess, could you guys go through maybe some of the, like, what, what makes it so unique and so hard to treat Parkinson's patients, maybe compared to some of your other cases and conditions that you see on a regular basis? Um, that you know, obviously you've got extra training for it. It's a specific thing, but I guess what are some of the very unique challenges that you guys both face? Uh, I think for me, one of the unique challenges, and I I 
when I am mentoring students in uh, the field of speech therapy, this is something that I try to stress to them is that individuals don't come in with a single diagnosis of Parkinson's. Uh, there's other things, they've lived a whole life and there's other things that have happened to them along the way. And so you're, you're really treating the whole person and that includes, you know, looking at their care team. Who's at home? Is somebody at home that can help? Um, and and really um, treating the the individual based on what their their specific needs are, what their home environment is like, what their interests are. It's not just we're not necessarily rehabbing to where we are looking to regain um, a skill, an ability. We're looking to maximize what they can do at this stage in their progression. I like to use the analogy that these individuals have been given a boulder and we can either stay at the top of the hill to set the boulder roll or the care team can gently guide that boulder down the hill and having that whole care team moving at the same pace um, and being able to bring in their areas of expertise is so important, but everybody's boulder still kind of moves at a different pace. Um, and they have different preferences too of what their treatment should look like. Everybody responds differently to pharmaceutical intervention. Um, and again, based on what other medications that they are taking for other, other issues. So um, I think that's what makes it so challenging, but so rewarding. It's what I love the most is um, looking at that that person individually. We can't treat everybody the same way. This is not a recipe. It is not cookie cutter. Um, everybody has their own occupational backgrounds. And it's just so interesting to be able to incorporate what they love the most in our treatment. Absolutely. No, I definitely agree, especially in the physical therapy world, too. You know, did they have knee replacement? Did they, you know, is their hip hurting? You know, all those things factor into, okay, well, you you had spinal surgery. We're not going to be able to put as much rotation into your program as someone else that didn't have spine surgery. Um, but it, it's, it's unique. Everybody's a little bit different. You know, their, their goals are different. Um, some people come in and they're like, I just want to be able to keep walking. That's, that's my goal. Or it's, I need to be able to, um, you know, I want to play with my grandkids or travel. Um, and you know, Parkinson's doesn't have to limit you, um, you know, to, you're not stuck in a chair. You know, it's one of those things that we can um, work with you to figure out, you know, what it is that you want. And then we we make your goals something that you want to attain so that it's actually something that you want to work to. Um, I've had patients whose caregivers have come in with them and said, this is what I want them to be able to do. Well, our outcomes aren't as good because the patient did that's maybe not what the patient wanted that's what their spouse or their sister um, or family member wanted them to be able to do so you know when when the the parkinson's patient themselves is making their goals and setting their goals i find that you know we we succeed so much better because it's something they they want to do that makes sense. It does. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, do you ever have a hard time 
explaining that to any of them or are they all pretty accepting of the fact that like this is a progression and you're not necessarily going to improve from this but we can make this process go more smoothly I think one of the things with Parkinson's is that they are not always aware that these changes have happened and so I hear a lot of, I, I'm loud enough. They just, the other person, my spouse, my whoever can't hear me. It's them. They need a hearing aid. And so I think the hardest thing for me is getting them to understand that, that Parkinson's has changed them and for me, their communication abilities. And once we get going in the program and they come in and they say, you know, I was talking and my dog turned around and heard me and that my dog hasn't heard me, hasn't responded to me to come back in the house in months. Or I ordered at a restaurant and I didn't have to repeat myself. Or I drove through a the bank drive through and they actually heard me. And that's when they start realizing that they do have these difficulties. That's the hardest part for me um, is is trying to get them to to that awareness level. But once we get it, it's so exciting because there are so many changes that can be made and we can use these uh, treatment approaches to help fend off some of the, the other changes that will happen a lot sooner if we just stand there and let that boulder, um, like I referenced before, if we just let it go. So. Um, I think explaining the process is not the difficult part. It's more getting that awareness, that initial awareness that changes actually have occurred. Can you go through just a little bit um, kind of what uh, a session is like um, for someone that you're working with with Parkinson's? You know, what are you guys focusing on or, you know, that sort of thing? So we are really focusing on using a volume that is loud enough. And to that individual living with Parkinson's, it's going to feel like they're shouting um, because their brain has been saying for a long time that the volume, the soft volume they have is good enough when it hasn't been. So we work a lot on volume. And when we increase our volume, we automatically use bigger speech, um, meaning that our speech becomes more clear. So when you think about um, any political leader, not going to get into politics here, but any political leader who's giving a speech um, and they they have a different presentation, they are using a louder voice, they are breathing deeper, and their speech is more clear. Their articulation is more clear. It, it just, those two things are paired together. So we look to see, are those two things happening? Um, And we do some structured exercise, of course, that aims to improve the volume and the clear speech. And then we move into what I call functional tasks. So we have them come up with 10 phrases they say every day, and we have them practice those so that they are louder. The goal of that is that when they get home, they're going to be able to say those, remembering that loud, that clear voice, that they're going to be able to say it in the exact same way at home. And we're going to start seeing some of those changes within the home environment. From there, we go into some more fun tasks of um, just doing some fun uh, language activities, things where they don't 
it's not so purpose. I don't want to say purposeful, but they're not as mindful maybe um, of this exercise. We're not just holding out a long uh, sound or focusing so um, so much on the volume, but we're doing it more in a general conversation uh, and more of that conversational speech. I have a philosophy that, um, you know, therapy disciplines work so closely together and there's so much overlap. And again, we're treating this whole individual. So I like to incorporate physical activities, whether that's um, more of just fine motor, gross motor, hands, you know, walking across the room, we very rarely uh, just sit and talk. We are usually talking with our hands. We are talking as we're walking across the house. And so I have uh, these these people who uh, with Parkinson's um, will come when they come in, I have them do things that are just like at home, walking from counter to counter. Um, we'll do fun things like stacking cups just to work on being able to communicate and move at the same time. So um, that's typically how our sessions will run. It's it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun and it doesn't feel like work, which is exactly what I want. Cool. Do you do any, um, do you focus on breathing at all with them or, or more just like sound, like vocal loudness and sounds? So we do focus on breathing, but not in a very direct way. Um, we do it through, you need breath support to produce your voice. You need the airflow through your vocal cords in order to produce voice at all, but especially um, a loud voice and a sustained voice. So we often have those individuals take a big breath in and hold out the ah sound for as long as they can. And we start to look at that starts to increase in length. It starts to be longer and longer, which means, which means they're using their breath more efficiently. Um, I use the uh, the analogy, I guess, that your breath is like the gas pedal. That's like your fuel tank. And so the more air we can put in and the more we can control the how long that air is lasting, that's where we're going to get our volume and the clarity of our speech. Absolutely. No, we, um, the only reason I was asking is that, um, you know, the diaphragm is a muscle. And so it's one of those things that as physical therapists, it's not always something that you think about but even with our exercises, even with when I do the, the Parkinson's exercises, you know, being able to, to fully extend your diaphragm and then have, you know, be able to push out all the air. Um, so, you know, being able to combine some of that probably, I would guess, helps you, you know, with the Absolutely. same sort of patients because they're, they're able to fill their lungs fully so that then they can have a full breath of air that they're working with versus a lot of people don't breathe all the way down to the bottom. They don't fill their lungs. They're only filling, you know, a half to 75%. So it's one of those things as physical therapists, even though we're technically working on your motor skills, you know, you're, mm -hmm. we're also working on, okay, you inhale as you, you know, do the movement, you're exhaling, you're pushing it all out. And we, we do, I do, I find that I start with almost diaphragmatic breathing and working on, um, mm -hmm. you know, all of those sorts of things just to get them to use it, to use it correctly. Right. And what happens when we have bigger breaths, we have more oxygen going through our blood and that oxygen is going to all the different vital organs. And we see, you know, that's so important for cognition and thinking and remembering and 
and finding those right words. And it's, it's just a win-win overall. Absolutely. And so thinking back to a lot of your Parkinson's patients, uh, what, what obstacles or challenges do they most often feel when it comes to the health care that they receive from kind of all angles? Like, do they specifically voice something or another to you that like, hey, it's, I find this really difficult about either getting the care or continuing the care? Is it the cost? Is it finding good individuals? Anything in common that kind of sticks out to you as something you often hear? Um, I would say at least for, for me, um, the hardest thing is, is that the timing, if they're on a medication for Parkinson's, like a, a L-Dopa or, um, Levodopa, the timing of it with in conjunction with working with me, we have to make sure, um, especially if it's new, if this is a new diagnosis and they're just starting on the medication, the medication ebbs and flows. And so um, you've worked with someone too, Brady, um, where if that medication has worn off, we're not getting anything done that day. I mean, we have to really pull back on what we can do. But the next time they come in, They've taken it, you know, a little bit later, or changed when they're taking stuff, um, and it's it, it makes a difference. So I would say that's the hardest thing, at least for me, is working with the doctor or working with the patient themselves in the timing of the medication, or sometimes the medication isn't working, um, and they need to go back to their doctor and say, I need a different kind of concoction um, to, to, for it to work just because it's not doing what it's supposed to or it's not lasting long enough. Um, so I would say from my perspective, it's more medication usage than anything as far as healthcare difficulties. Sure. Um, and I would just like to add, I have a, I think it's a little bit different from my perspective being a private practice owner, but um, I think that it's a huge time commitment mm-hmm. going through big and loud, both programs you're talking four days a week for four weeks. That's a big commitment. And how many of us have started a new workout routine? And after a few days, we just want to be done with it. Um, and so being able to commit to that schedule is a lot. Um, and I think a lot of our major healthcare organizations, um, more of the big hospital systems, I think there is more of a wait to get in because the scheduling is so difficult to have back-to-back sessions four days a week for four weeks. You know, some people have to start their programs um, after waiting a few months. And I think they don't always know that there's other people like us out there at the smaller clinics like Freedom or private clinics like mine um, and getting that awareness. I don't have a neurologist within my clinic that can refer to me. And so, um, you know, I encourage 
individuals with Parkinson's and their families to, to really look at what is available outside of what you would expect in these hospital systems. Um, and then, of course, if individuals have high co-pays for sessions, I've seen that too, where it's a financial commitment um, and an investment. It's an investment into what their quality of life can be, and it's it's worth it, but I understand when it's difficult for those reasons. Do you, um, I don't want to say have like a graduated program, but I kind of have like a graduated program. So like we'll go through like the protocol for LSVT big. Um, but then like, do you have people that will do like a tune up or, you know, like that they'll come every six weeks, once a week, or, you know, like that it's not as intense that they're going to be doing their, their home exercise programs, but that, you know, they kind of, you, you do a tune up with them. Uh, so when I was working in the hospital setting, we had created a exercise group that incorporated physical and, and speech therapy. And it was a great way for individuals living with Parkinson's to maintain those skills that they worked so hard to improve. Um, in my current setting, I encourage those that I work with to seek out um, what are called loud crowds. Um, so those are those groups that meet to maintain vocal abilities. Um, any of the LSVT exercise groups in the community, I am happy to see them for a tune-up per se. Um, but I also see that these established groups that I do not have at the moment um, are also so beneficial um, for them to feel this sense of community um, of support through these the exercise groups have individuals living with Parkinson's, but also their caregivers can go and exercise with them. And so then they have a support network. So um, I, like I said, I'm, I'm happy to see them individually, but I also see the benefit of these larger established groups that I would love to at some point grow myself. No, absolutely. I think, you know, when they, I have a couple patients right now that also are in a exercise group together. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, Joe came and he was walking so much, but you know, it's like they, they notice things, they encourage each other. You know, if they're running into a problem, they can say, this is what's going on. Has anybody else dealt with this? What do you think it could be? And nine times out of 10, someone else has, oh yeah, that happened to me. And all I had to do, I called the doctor and they just, blah, 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 you know, and it's like they have yeah. each other to, to kind of lean on a little bit. And as you said too, the caregivers have someone else to lean on to other caregivers that, you know, oh, I'm having a really hard time, you know, getting Joe out of the car, you know, oh, well we use this, you know, um, rotating mat in the car and you know it's like they can bounce ideas off each other or you know oh you know I've I've gotten um, referrals from people that were working in the exercise class that I had seen and someone said oh I'm having a really hard time with this well Susie referred her friend from the exercise class over to me because they knew that I I focus on a lot of things that are more um, individual than necessarily like an exercise class. So I tend to do a lot more of our, um, you know, hierarchy um, objectives and techniques and exercises based on specifics that they need versus the exercise class is more just getting them moving, staying moving, 
remembering to do things big, having the external encouragement of the classroom. Um, but then I, I'm kind of the nitpicker. I'm the one that, you know, they come to with, I'm having a hard time getting on a chair. I can't get off the toilet. Um, you know, I can't get into bed. I can't lay down. I can't roll over. Then I'm in there and I'm saying, okay, let's break it down you know, focusing on the specific things they can't do versus just that gross motor of moving and moving on a regular basis. And so then, um, sorry, lost my thought. Um, I have a question oh, if you're good. Perfect. Um, is there a difference between those two loud, the LSVT big and then the or LSVT loud, sorry, and the other program that you talked about? Yes. So there's LSVT Loud and then there's Speak Out and they are they're different programs with with similar benefits um, and the structure is a little bit different. LSVT Loud is four times a week for four weeks. Speak Out can be dropped a little bit two to three times a week. Um, the protocols that the, of the exercises that uh, individuals go through is different. I see more um, established incorporation of cognitive um, skills in the Speak Out program. Of course, we can always incorporate it into the LSVT. Um, but yes, very different, very different um, programs, but with equal benefit. Cool. And then also, do you? So I know we've we've been talking about Parkinson's just because it's what we're both certified in, but I know that you also work, um, with just other adults. Can you tell us just a little bit, what other kind of diagnosis is that you work with in adults? Absolutely. So, um, I am fully aware that our title as a speech language pathologist or a speech therapist is, is a little bit unclear as far as what we do. Um, but I do work with individuals who have any difficulty with their communication, whether that's a motor speech, getting those sounds to come out clear, um, their voice, finding the right words, um, those with cognitive difficulties, memory loss, um, you know, make, uh, you know, keeping track of, of what you're doing when you're doing it. Um, and uh, swallowing disorders. So those who have experienced changes to their swallowing where something isn't going down the right way or it's not completely clearing when they swallow. And a lot of times that's a result of uh, traumatic brain injury, stroke. Um, I have a significant group of individuals living with Alzheimer's disease um, that I support and as well as their families, their loved ones, their care network. Um, and and so while I do focus more of my time in the adult world, I also have a um, client base of pediatrics or kids that I see um, for more traditional things like their sounds or maybe they're not talking um, as early as they should be or could be. Um, so those are typically though the the medical diagnoses that i see and that i work with anything neurological um really improving quality of life and overall functioning is is really where my passion is whatever that looks like um and every everybody is very different um when they come in and, and what our goals are but um that's really the umbrella of of the individuals that i work with um, the one thing I did 
want to so you mentioned that uh at some of the hospital systems it's hard to get into and the wait list might be long to get everything paired up how you need it with schedules for those patients what is the best way to find resource other resources that are alternatives to the hospital systems like how would they go about finding those you could certainly uh, connect with the Wisconsin Parkinson Association. Um, you can connect, you can, if you know the specific treatments available, if somebody has mentioned, we want you to go for LSVT Big, LSVT Loud, or the Speak Out, um, you can look up providers with those certifications and see where else these services are offered and where else the providers are located. Um, there's definitely options out there. Um, but again, that's maybe where a social worker would be um, beneficial if you don't have the resources to research those things, um, that a social worker would be able to assist with that um, that research. Do you find that hospital systems are doing a good job telling patients that there are alternatives or not really? I don't think that that is a avenue that they would ever go down. Um, obviously, they're going to want to keep their their patients within, starting with, you know, the primary physicians, the neurologists, everything is going to, they want to keep everything within their system. And so um, they'll refer to therapy or um, whatever other, whoever else is on their care team. And so I don't think there's much encouragement for those individuals or their families to reach out of that network. And also insurance companies are dictating um, where they can get services. And that's, that's difficult too. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're both kind of on the North shore of Milwaukee. um, And so at least right now, freighter, is not, they don't, well, they're building on this side of town, but for a while they didn't have anything on this side of town. So people did not want to drive 45 minutes west of here to do LSVT big. Sort mm-hmm. you know, so I feel like I got a little bit from there. Um, but I think most of what, um, the way people find me is either word of mouth, um, where they're connected to somebody else who has Parkinson's who may have come to me, um, or even just within the clinic, you know, I, we, we have different videos and stuff up that people, oh my God, my dad has Parkinson's. Oh, you know, and I think, you know, we, because we're independent practitioners, um, I think a lot of our clients come from word of mouth or just happening to, to stumble upon us. Um, we're not really getting um, a ton of referrals from neurologists or just primary care physicians. Um, and so kind to kind of to, to close everything up, um, did, did we miss anything that you would say, like if someone's got Parkinson's or if you know someone's got Parkinson's, um, you know, did we did we miss any topics that you either of you really want people to know about? You know, I think for me, it's just encouraging. You can't ever start too early in the therapy process to start services immediately and and to not only to 
for the initial evaluation and to see if they could benefit from services at that time, but to be able to have a point of contact throughout that process, because when changes do occur, you want somebody that you've already established contact with and, and hopefully have developed a good relationship with, you want to be able to reach out to that person. And being in a helping profession, a people profession, um, I think it's, it's just so important that when you find that provider that you are connected with to stay in touch so that they can be there for you when you need it. It's just not, you cannot establish contact um, too early when right after you've been diagnosed when at any point in that process, but the sooner you can, you can establish that contact, I think the better off you'll be. Well, that, and I think too, with both of our professions, you know, we see them a lot more than maybe their neurologist or their primary care physician. So we, we tend to notice things, you know, a change good or bad, um, more, Closely, I mean, we, we see it quicker than maybe a different provider for them, um, as well as they they see us more, they get to know us better. Um, we we establish a kind of a deeper relationship with them. Um, so I think sometimes they they feel more comfortable coming up and saying to either one of us, "I'm really struggling with this," where they may not feel that comfort when they go to see the neurologist two or three times a year or their primary care physician two or three times a year. Um, you know, I feel like we kind of become their, their advocate, but also their, their confidant where they feel like they can trust us and that we're looking out for their best needs their best, you know, um, I can't think of the word, but they, they definitely look to us to help them and then they feel confident in telling us things that maybe they wouldn't have shared with others. Wonderful. Um, So uh, again, did I leave anything out at all? So uh, Emily, if if, if you could then, could you please uh, give your practice a shout out, let us know where you're located, um, anywhere we can follow you on any social media or best ways to contact you to get in touch with you if, if anybody would need and we'll include all, also, all, also include any of that information in the show notes as well. Absolutely. So I haven't really entered the social media world yet. Um, I am a smaller private practice in Mequon. Um, I am right next door to the freighter complex, um, but I'm, I am holding my own. So um, you can find my website it's very easy at Emily Belter SLP for speech language pathologist. Uh, dot com and um, same thing for email Emily Belter SLP at Gmail. Um, those are probably the easiest ways to get in touch with me. I would love to help anyone out there that has listened and uh, would benefit from services. Wonderful. Um, and you can find Molly at freedompt.com um, and see some of Molly's Parkinson's videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, just search Freedom PT on. Uh, YouTube and uh, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If anybody <laughs> Parkinson's is on TikTok, I don't know, um, but uh, but they're there. Um, so thank you both for coming on and, and sharing uh, your passion for treating Parkinson's patients in your respective fields. And uh, it's very interesting and now uh, learned learned a lot. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks.